the former president of the United States of America, has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest, and because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept he lost. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. This week, mark the anniversary of the most serious assault on democratic rule since at least the Civil War, a storming of the Capitol and attack on legislators to keep them from certifying Joe Biden as the 46th President of the United States. Reliving that day reminds us of the dedication to raw lies and violence against the democratic order by constitutional infidels. And yet it's clear that as crazy and surreal as it felt at the time, one year later, the pernicious myths underpinnings remain in place to a far greater degree than almost anyone could have anticipated. So that now the New York Times can cogently write, every day is January 6th now. How could it be that the risable and dangerous narrative that motivated the rioters still retains its hold on large portions of the American population and threatens to be the driving force to return Republicans to power? And how does beating it back depend on the president's use of the bully pulpit, the January 6th committee's ability to present the full facts, and the Department of Justice's prosecution of the offenders, up to and including the former president? Meanwhile, the latest variant of COVID has infiltrated U.S. society in almost unfathomable numbers even if most of the afflicted are not threatened with death. One million Americans got COVID on Monday alone, and the week saw an average of 600,000 citizens infected every day. Schools were completely dislocated, and no element of American daily life was unaffected. And some Biden administration officials are advising a pivot to a communication strategy that would acknowledge the virus is here to stay and is now a matter not of hard-nosed science, but of political risk management. To try to help us make sense of these cataclysmic events, I'm really pleased to welcome three superb commentators, all returning guests to Talking Feds, and they are David Farenthold, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Washington Post, asterisk, who fairly single-handedly dug into the muck of Trump's finances and bogus charities, in 2016 and gave us a strong picture of what was coming. He also received the George Polk Award for political reporting, the Robin Toner Prize for political reporting, the Hillman Prize and numerous others, and serves as a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Asterisk. He joins us on a major professional week for him with the announcement that he is moving to the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Congratulations on the move, David. When do you start? Thank you. I start January 24th. So are you off now? Do you have a little downtime? 
I mean, I'm still a Washington Post employee as of this week and next week. And it, after 21 years, there's a lot of work to be done to <laughs> hand off all, all my, you know, contacts, documents and everything. So right. it's not really off, but it's definitely less than working. All right. Juliet Kayyem, a national security analyst at CNN and the senior Belfer lecturer in international security at Harvard's Kennedy School, where she's also faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Global Health Projects. She served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She is the author of the best-selling book, Security Mom, and not least, she is the author of the new upcoming book titled The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Really exciting news, Juliet. When will it be available? And give us a quick pricey on it. Oh, okay. So pre-order. So it doesn't matter when it comes out. March 29th, uh, 2022 <laughs> yeah. is when you can get it in bookstores, hopefully. Although given COVID, it is not at all clear what a book events are going to look like in March, although one is hopeful. And it's a book I've been thinking about, my God, throughout my career, just about how to prepare for a world in which disasters are no longer random and rare. Our disaster management system is built on a belief that these are one-off events. And I think the world has shown us that that's not true. So it goes from Greek mythology to Surfside and Florida and everything in between. Wow. All right. And yes, listeners, there will be a special Talking Books episode on Juliet's new yes. book, The Devil Never Sleeps. Thanks. And finally, Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, the co-host of AEI's Election Watch, a contributing editor for the National Journal, and a prolific author. He co-wrote the bestseller, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. He's assaulted with this distinction at every appearance. Nevertheless, it's true. He has been named one of the top 100 global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine, especially for diagnosing America's political and congressional-driven dysfunction. Thanks, as always, for being here, Norm Ornstein, and Happy New Year to you. The same to you, Harry, and what a great panel to be with. All right, and to start with a little anniversary we had this week, where to start? How about the mind-boggling fact that one year after January 6th, its building blocks remain very much in place and in many ways strengthened. There was this brief period this week reminded me just after the insurrection in which many Republican leaders seemed united in their view that the president was at fault, maybe should face criminal charges, that sentiment just evaporated quickly and completely, giving way to a Republican Party that now overwhelmingly endorses the big lie and makes it the main plank of an otherwise vacuous platform. So what happened? How did this hope and maybe expectation that people would call out the cataclysmic event for what it was just disappear? There are, I think, a few elements here. The first and most significant is that the Republican Party is not a party anymore. It's a cult. And in a cult, the fear of being excommunicated or shunned or viewed as an apostate overwhelms everything else. So we saw this yesterday as Ted Cruz who had made this gaffe, a gaffe being telling something that's true that embarrasses people, talked about the violent mob, and then went on Tucker Carlson and totally debased himself to walk back those words. Now, some of that may be presidential ambition, 
But the number of people from Kevin McCarthy to Mitch McConnell to so many others who scarred on January 6th last year said the president's responsible for this, then saw that they were going to be shunned by the cult and stepped back from it. Now, I think there's another element, Harry, which is that they're also driven by their mass audience and supporters. So a year after all of this, 70% of American Republicans still believe that Donald Trump won the election. And I'm going to give you something really quite striking from a set of surveys done by the University of Virginia's Center for Politics with Larry Sabato and a group of scholars from the University of Massachusetts. 52% of Trump voters agreed now with the following statement. The people who occupied the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021 should be applauded because they were mostly patriotic Americans trying to right the wrong of the 2020 presidential election being unfairly stolen from Donald Trump by massive election fraud. So this is an attempt to whitewash history, to bow down to the great leader, to avoid being shunned or excommunicated. And of course, we then got along the way an attempt to create a bipartisan commission, which would have given Republicans some power in this, that the Senate shot down in a filibuster. It's not like anything we've seen in American political life before, certainly in our lifetimes and maybe ever. And did Trump sell this somehow or were his claws already so deeply in the clutches that it just organically happened and McConnell and all said, oh, never mind? Both. There's so many facets to this anniversary, and I've always looked at it through the lens of just my expertise, which is just radicalization and in particular counterterrorism. A week after the insurrection, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic basically saying we need to understand what Trump is at this stage. And he's the leader of a terrorist movement. Terrorism simply defined as violence or the threat of violence, which I think is very important here. Violence or the threat of violence for political me as a natural extension of, a, of political dialogue. And so then taking it from that, then what, what are strong counterterrorism efforts, right? So if you look at it through that lens, so I'm not talking about the legal issues nor the voting issues, right? right? Sort of the access issues that are at play. And in that sense, I think there's been some successes. So in particular, in counterterrorism, we say you have to decapitate the leader. That's symbolic in this case, which is you isolate him. And I think that one of the things that I'm looking at a year later is the deplatforming, the isolation, the legal cases against his troops. That's what they are. If you're looking at it from the perspective of recruitment, people who are going to use violence. So I don't mean the group that Norm is talking about, which is a much harder issue, but the people that would turn to violence, we are showing some progress in that regard, right? The noise is bad, but at least you're not seeing this groundswell of violence and his support. We don't know what's going to happen at the next election. So from that perspective, the story is somewhat complicated. What I loved, absolutely loved about Biden's speech on the anniversary was it was, as I wrote, fundamentally a counterterrorism speech. It was the equivalent of you are with us or you are against us. And we need to hear that for one, because the majority of the population, forget the Republicans, are in the right, right? I mean, in other words, this is a distinct group that are troublesome and have political power. But on the other hand, there is a majority sentiment that does not tolerate violence or what's going on. But I also thought the humiliation the isolation, the references to defecation, which was not on accident, really humiliated Trump in a way that if he were a terrorist in the framework that people like me think of, 
that's actually what you do, right? You don't want to negotiate. You want to isolate. And so there are some pieces to this on the radicalization that are starting to look more interesting than I think the more depressing aspects of what Norm is talking about, which is how much of the population believes something as compared to how much of the population would turn to violence. But let me take the flip side of that which is it appears that for some in the terrorist movement, January 6th was a recruiting event. And then also this bizarre fact that of the 52 percent, or you can figure it in different ways, we're talking about a lot of every time people do analyses, bookkeepers and healthcare workers and not the sort of ragtag proud boys and the like, right? Right. So a certain percentage, about 30 percent of those that were there a year ago were affiliated with one of the groups and those groups are struggling. So they've gone underground, they've gone localized, but it's harder for them to raise money. And they're fighting against each other, interestingly. And they're fighting, they've turned on each other. So if you look at it from the perspective of recruitment, how does a terror organization, which I have no qualms calling this, how do these terror organizations survive? Money and bodies. And how do they do that is a sense of winning. So if you compare it to ISIS, Once again, I'm not going to apologize for this. So ISIS loses geography. It finds it difficult to raise money. And therefore, the idea that these guys coming from Turkey or Lebanon are joining a winning team is a very hard narrative for the leadership to sustain. And I think Trump is finding that as well. He cannot fill a room. He cannot sell tickets to fill a room. So whatever the Republican leadership strategy is, which I don't get, he cannot fill a room. That's the decapitation symbolically that I look at. Well, David, let me ask you about that, because we hear very different things. And then there's at least a a sliver of the Republican establishment or former establishment that's been forthright in his criticism. Carl Rove in The Wall Street Journal, and he already was a minority president. So is there any chance that the big lie and this continued re-litigation of the grievances of January 6th, is there any chance in a word, Donald Trump? won't dominate U.S. politics in 2022 and 2024? Well, I think he's certainly going to play a big role. But when you say dominate, one of the interesting things about this year to me was the Glenn Youngkin race in Virginia. Right, That's a guy who won a really surprising victory by not being Donald Trump, by being close enough to Trump not that Trump wouldn't turn on him, but by running on a different version of republicanism that was closer to Republicans of a pre-Trump era. So I think there is a chance for someone who has charisma in the Republican Party to come out and they would certainly not win by opposing Trump, but by doing something like Youngkin did, maybe somebody like DeSantis or somebody like that, who can follow the same sort of trends, but not be dominated by them and do enough that Trump doesn't see them as an enemy, but they don't aim at the same people. I think Youngkin's win in some cases was a healthy sign about democracy, that this is a Republican who won the nomination and then won the election, not talking about this stuff or not focusing on this stuff that we've talked about now, which seems like the focus of the Republican Party. Whether they learn from that or not, I don't know. But it certainly seemed like a pretty clear sign that that was the way they would win in the future. So let's turn back, Norm, to the Dems, because as Julie said, marked change in tone from Biden, so aggressive and really taking it to Trump and the big lie. So Do you take this as an augury of how he and the party are going to be? You know, Trump held a dagger to the throat of America, a web of lies, really, really pressing that case. Or was that a sort of one-stop anniversary thing that either he or the party won't be sounding repeatedly? Before I get to that, I want to just reflect for a minute on what David said. Yeah. Because I have a different view of Glenn Youngkin. I don't see it as positive. 
he ran a clever campaign. A lot of it was playing the race card over and over again with critical race theory. He ran pretty vile commercials in Southern Virginia in rural areas and then wore his vest and looked like a pretty good guy. Now, as he's about to become governor, he picked Trump's head of EPA to run his environmental operation. And his first task is going to be to dismantle the regional setup to try and combat greenhouse gases and climate change. So you can run in a different way and not be as bombastic and crude as Trump. I don't see that as particularly healthy. And if I look at a Ron DeSantis, a Christy Nome, what they're trying to do is use COVID as a wedge issue, and they don't care if many of their people die along the way. DeSantis just today, for example, said, if you don't have any symptoms, there's no need to test. You won't get anything out of it. You know, I tweeted, is Omicron paying him to say this? <laughs> so now onto the Democrats, you know, Joe Biden tried manfully for a year to be the uniter in a tribal world. You're not easily going to be a uniter. I will give him credit that he is governed as a uniter. He hasn't taken catastrophes in different parts of the country that are red states and said, forget about your getting disaster aid. When Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, who has done everything he can to block mask mandates and any kind of safety measures and vaccination mandates from the federal government, crowed about it all the time, then turned around as COVID cases mushroomed and begged for help from the federal government. You didn't have Joe Biden going out there and saying, screw you, Greg Abbott, you're on your own. You know, they're going to give him the stuff. But you're not going to get very far if you continue to use rhetoric that is, let's all come together when the reality of the world is a different one. So the speech yesterday was more than just taking on Donald Trump without mentioning his name. It was also a defense of democracy under attack, which I am told and I'm sure is not the first one. We have Martin Luther King's holiday coming up. I expect to see a defense of voting and elections. Admittedly, the president of the United States, even somebody who served 36 years in the Senate, can't do much to influence the behavior of individual senators. But there's going to be a real effort now to try and get those protections. They're not entirely adequate, but the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act done. And the bully pulpit of the president is still a powerful one and an important one. And I do think that this is a change in not just tone, but in behavior. Yeah, I think it's going to last. Now, the White House decided early on that they wanted to do a summit on the threats to democracy globally which sounded good, but was really foolish, in part because you start to invite countries and you have to decide which ones are democracies and which ones have destroyed democracy and you don't get very far. But it took the eye off the real ball, which is the threat to American democracy and diluted it. Now, if they can regain that, we've got a lot of voters out there. Some of those suburban voters that'll be active and important in 2022 the college-educated Republican voters who are turned off by some of Trump's rhetoric and maybe by a lot of what they see out there, the 30% of Republicans who don't think that the election was stolen, if you can reach some of those and convince them that we're not talking about Democrats versus Republicans, we're talking about Democrats, small d, versus would-be autocrats, 
then maybe you'll get somewhere. Can I just add to the, the sort of linkaging of also COVID with democracy and why I think that's important, or at least the COVID response? So if you look at radicalization, what happened after January 6th, this occurred before, but they go into hiding and then they emerge on a localized level with every conspiracy theory under the sun. But the main one being, of course, the anti-vaccination conspiracy theory that is being fed by Fox News and others. And so you have this sort of hate stew that is sort of aligning the stop the steal with the COVID response. So this is where I want a similar pivot by the Biden administration on COVID. Now, this is controversial in the middle of everything going on. Once again, I look at things through the prism that I know. COVID is horrible. It also is following the normal trajectory of disaster management and crisis management, which is we have every tool necessary to be able to live with COVID. And I think what you saw in Virginia with the governor's race and what you're seeing is the White House not leading us to a recovery. And part of that is their communication, which I am on board to say that we need new communicators. Let's just put it bluntly. And they are not communicators coming from the public health community. I'm done with the doctors. They don't need to tell me anything more. Give me a booster. I will take it four times a day. I'm your audience. What we need is maybe a former mayor or a former governor, which is very similar to other crises like BP oil spill, Hurricane Katrina, Superstorm Sandy, where you pivot from response to a different kind of calculation, right? These are the political calculations. What risk do we want our kids to have? Are schools critical infrastructure? Yes, we're keeping them open. How can Biden get ahead and safely, but lead us to where we're clearly headed? And instead of seeming like we're the party that doesn't know how to get out of this, we got us out of this. And I want him to own that. We are by every metric, however horrible things are at this moment, we are heading towards a recovery. It's a different kind of recovery. It's going to be a recovery where we're adapting because the virus still exists, but we know how to do this. My hope is that some of this criticism of the CDC director actually makes the White House rethink its overall strategy for 2022, because we should be, as a Democrat, we should be owning the response to COVID victory lap, even though there's challenges with testing and they should have gotten kits out faster and all that stuff. And I think that will have political consequences because it's, of course, the suburban moms who are pissed that we're not out of this. And that's a really good preface. We're going to talk a fair bit about this later in the show. I want to stick with the anniversary in a couple ways. I was just trying to think this morning. It's been a year. That's not so short. How is this being taught in schools in Oklahoma and Florida versus schools in California. And keeping in mind, I think this adage is true, that history is the propaganda of the victors. How do we think this sorry episode is actually going to you know, go down in U.S. history? And does it turn on the happenstance? of who wins the next few elections? I think it does depend on that. I think if Trump wins in 2024 or somebody who celebrates Trump wins in 2024, even if they win in 2022, I think it may be like that idea that it was patriots, that they were wrong and they were acting on that wrong. As incorrect as that is, I think it might be more widespread. I think it's a while before we know how it'll be taught in schools. I mean, I went to school in the 90s. I don't think we got up to the 70s and what we were teaching. It takes a while (laughs) for schools to teach this stuff. Or maybe you learn it all on the last day. 
But I do feel like it will be seen as a successful, maybe even justified action if the Republicans who believe in this stuff win the next few elections. It's interesting, Harry, that one of the other events this week was Donald Trump giving this full-throated and complete endorsement to Viktor Orban, the jackpoot autocratic dictator in Hungary. We know his role models. They're Orban, they're Putin, they're Sisi, they're Duterte. If he wins again, our democracy is gone, I think. But what we've seen in these other countries is that they make a huge effort to whitewash history. What they've done now, and it's clever in a lot of ways, they've tried to make themselves into victims in all of this. And look at how they're lionizing the people who've been arrested, that they're the victims. If you can get your people to believe that they're the victims, then they're going to mobilize and get out there. But what we also see is this effort from the ground up and Steve Bannon has talked about this, we're seeing it in a lot of places, to take over school boards, to change the nature of education. So I actually think if they win, and even if they don't, in a whole lot of places in the country, sooner rather than later, we are going to get a whitewashed, and I use the term whitewashed in every respect, view of history, which will take slavery as It's wonderful how they treated these people. They gave them jobs. They gave them housing and clothes, and they were all pretty happy. And that this was an era where the cancel culture tried to take over and the woke people were defeated and noble forces shed blood to preserve what matters in American life. I mean, mind blowing. I think about this a lot. And when people get, you know, apocalyptic, okay, maybe we're not Stalinist Russia, but Turkey. There's a good example. Moving a quarter turn toward that, it seems plausible. I appreciate Norm bringing in the racial aspects or the racist aspects of the radicalization that we're seeing. You really cannot separate them at this stage. And I was really struck yesterday watching some of the coverage. I can't remember who it was. African-American congresswoman was interviewed and she said the Capitol Police told all the Congress members to take off their pins because they might not then be identified and targeted. And she said, I can't take off my skin. For her, I mean, the the obvious sense was like that noose doesn't appear for nothing, right? We all know what the noose means. And I think that what Biden did importantly yesterday was to turn any notion that this was a political movement into this is a terror movement with all of the racism and the violence and everything else that, that normally animates terror movements, right? Ethnic terror movements. And I thought that was really important to remind people what really does animate a lot of these people, which is that the country doesn't look like them. And we're going to see more of this, by the way, coming up. The one six committee is pretty soon going to be having a series of hearings and not like lawyers presenting dry summaries, but people in the chair with the Klieg lights kind of Watergate moments in the overall battle of trying to show the small D democratic nonpartisan constitutional stakes. Is that going to be a sort of big civic moment for the country? Is it going to fall flat or make the Democrats look like partisans? How do you see the impact of these big hearings that are coming up? I'm so interested to see this just because I feel like the Godfather led us to believe that congressional hearings are more powerful than (laughs) they really are. Congressional hearings, in my experience, are almost uniformly less effective than you would think because they're set up as a stage. They're explicitly set up to show the public something. And there's no stage management. Every congressman gets to give a 10-minute speech before they ask their question. 
Usually every congressman asks a different line of questioning than the last congressman asked. There's no attempt to build it toward anything. It's truly the only person I have seen question anyone effectively in the last 10 years was, if you remember the Michael Cohen hearings, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yeah. asked questions about facts. And then when Michael Cohen said something, she would then ask a follow-up question. She didn't make speeches. Follow-ups, amazing. And the four answers she got out of Cohen have changed the way we see Trump, have led to all these criminal investigations. I hope that if the Democrats want to accomplish something out of this, that they take that into account. Because if this opens with a five-minute speech from some senior congressman or a 10-minute speech before the first question is asked, which is the way congressmen think these things ought to go, it's over. I don't think anybody's going to pay that much attention. Or maybe they'll see two seconds of highlights on the news. I've tried for many, many years to get Congress to change the way they do hearings. 30-minute segments with follow-up questions and start with a narrative done by a council usually to set the stage. I'm not sure my conversations with members of the January 6th committee suggest that they're aware of this problem. I think there's another problem here, which is the tension span of a public where events occur with dizzying speed and what happens one day can have an enormous impact on you and then it's gone the next day. If you think back to the impeachment process and the videos that they put together that were incredibly powerful, that really showed how violent all of this was. And then it was gone and so many other things took over. And I noticed, by the way, yesterday, while I didn't want it, my wife put on Tucker Carlson for a few minutes. And Tucker showed a video of the shaman entering the Senate floor and a police officer who was there speaking to him very nicely. And there were just a handful of people on the floor and said, this is the video that explains what really happened. We need to repeat this over and over again with that video. But I also think that what the January 6th committee has done is to begin to build powerful evidence and to get a narrative together. And they've got an awful lot of witnesses who've come in and talked to them. Frankly, you look at the big players, contempt of Congress citations, refusing to testify. It's not going to mean very much because other players are giving them information. Whether Donald Trump succeeds, I doubt that he will. But if he did in keeping a lot of his communications from getting to the committee, there are communications that went in both directions. And other people, including members of Congress and outsiders like Sean Hannity, are going to have powerful evidence of a direct collusion with Donald Trump and probably going back a long time before January 6th itself. And if they can put that out on the table, if they do it right, and David's right, you can blow it, and they have in so many cases. If they do it right, I think, among other things, it's going to put tremendous pressure on the attorney general to do something he really would prefer not to do, which is to go after the president, cabinet officers, chiefs of staff, and others, which is always tricky because you don't want to make it look like you're a banana republic going after your political opponents. But in this case, It's something far more powerful. I agree with everything, David, you just said, and Norm. Just a quick counterpoint is Watergate. Hal Heflin also was pretty damn boring. But at night on the news, you got John Dean or Jeb Magruder. So in other words, some of this will be filtered through if they play it right. And they do seem to me a pretty smart group and well-resourced. Then the soundbite wars should be pretty strong for them come 6 p.m. Hi, I'm Chris Brown, president of Brady, one of the oldest gun violence prevention organizations in the U.S. 
One year after the attack on our nation's capital, I'm more worried than ever about threats to our democracy and the role that firearms continue to play. Check out our latest report on how Second Amendment extremism led to the January 6th attack at BradyUnited.org. And don't miss our weekly podcast, Red, Blue, and Brady, available wherever you're listening. All right, let's move to Garland for a second. He was under a lot of pressure to say something. And it's been really interesting to me, the almost Rorschach test of the reactions here. A lot of people are like, huh, it was nothing. A lot of people were like, yes, he really came through. How did you read his speech? Was it kind of a zero or a pretty big deal? I interpreted that some 25-year-old communications people in his office told him, you know, you've got a lot of really cranky people on Twitter. You should say something. I definitely don't get the Twitter hostility to Garland right now. First of all, we have no idea what the hell is going on. So any day you wake up and there's a grand jury decision, and you also don't want to screw it up by having him come out. And I don't think that these are exigent circumstances because there's a hundred other different things going on, including the cases against the people that were on the Capitol. But what is sort of an irony is for four or five years, all the same people were saying the DOJ is too politicized, that they need to do X, Y, and Z. They need to listen to me. And then why isn't he being faster or listening to me? And I'm definitely viewing Garland's decision as one in which it's probably better not to have a strong opinion about right now, because the one thing I do know about Garland in the counterterrorism cases and his in particular, Oklahoma City, we have no idea. We have no idea on the outside. First, I know Merrick Garland. He's a friend. I've known him for some years, I have as everybody who knows him, just immense respect for him. He is brilliant. He has enormous integrity. You could tell from the emotion when he talked about Oklahoma City that he cares. We know that what was missing in the speech yesterday was a direct reference to November and December and not just January 6th. And the critical parts of this are not what took place on January 4th, 5th, 6th, the days leading up to it and January 6th itself. It was the planning to try and subvert the election. It was Trump's effort, which we have seen over and over again, the smoking gun of his conversation with Brad Raffensperger, with so many others. And what remains to be seen is whether the Justice Department is going to go after all of those things. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that all of my friends who have been prosecutors, like Harry, looked at this through their prosecutorial lens. And it is the case that you start at the bottom and you move up. And you don't want to bring charges unless you're absolutely certain that you're going to have a very reasonable expectation of getting convictions in court. And that a year is not a huge amount of time when you're talking about something as deep and important and powerful and sensitive as this. So I will give him a lot of slack that he doesn't get on Twitter in terms of why hasn't he already indicted Trump on multiple charges And there are still a whole lot of good people in the Justice Department and U.S. attorneys' offices who are working on a lot of this. And, of course, we have to remember that New York and possibly D.C. have oars in the water here. But if we don't get to the conspiracy, which is ongoing, I will tell you, I was struck by something that General Milley said to the Washington Post uh, reporters who did this terrific book. Bill Rucker and Carolina. Yeah. Go back to Russia. 1905 was a failed revolution. That was not the end of it. It was the beginning of it. 
It was, what lessons can we learn from why we failed? And they succeeded in 1917. And all over the country, Republican actors are trying to look at how they could now get rid of election officials who had integrity and put in others who don't, intimidate election workers so you can keep people from voting or change those vote totals, manipulate the state legislatures and Sam Alito and the Supreme Court so that you can, even if the election turned out one way in a state, have the state legislature send a different slate of electors, and Alito's made it clear that he thinks they have power no matter what. I mean, there are things out there that we need to get to, and the Justice Department has to have its hand in there. More turkey. I'll just offer quickly on Garland, who I actually worked with as a prosecutor. First, I thought the speech, it was crafted very carefully, and his voice went up and his cadence got slower. And he buoyed people's spirits, but I think he was saying what always had to be the case. You can't possibly go to just the ragtag group and then shut down, so you have to look at it. But in that sense, maybe it was reassuring. I think the thing that people didn't see right away, and it's really going to be important and dispiriting for a lot of partisans, was the timeline point. There's no way that he gives them what they want in this timeline that they are racing through, which is to say basically the end of the summer, early fall. And one more point is you're right. Generally, Juliet, he's a total button down, keeps it quiet. But if they were already at that high investigative stage, there'd be the Bannons or others of the world who'd be coming out of the grand jury and jawboning a lot. So I think he will get there, but he's not there yet. If you look at the pool of the 600, 700 people that they've already gone after. There is a very obvious narrative. You're going after first the nonviolent, what I call the noisy trespassers. And those are the people who didn't get very strong sentences and everyone was upset. Now you've got the violent trespassers. They're getting up to five freaking years. That is not insignificant amount of time for someone, especially people who don't have previous records. Then the third is a conspiracy. We've just started the second. Man, a lot to talk about. And Garland, while much of it was bromides and automatic, I thought it was really interesting how he tied it to voting rights. In fact, Norm, given your daily news op-ed this week, I take it you think we are really at the great glass moment for reforming the filibuster and going to voting rights. We are because a lot of the damage is already occurring out there. And if you don't get some of the guardrails in place, they won't have an impact on 2022. And you want them to have an impact on 2022, even as you head to 2024. So we're close, Harry. I actually have another piece that's just out on five myths about the filibuster. But that's one of the Post Outlook's regular pieces aimed at trying to get at some of the misconceptions that are out there, especially with Mansion and Cinema. And they're key now to where we go. And they're not there yet. We're getting closer. And if we don't get change in the filibuster rule, and it can be narrowly targeted or not, that enables at least a fighting chance to get the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Then afterwards, we can turn to the Electoral Count Act, which needs reform. But I can tell you that when Mitch McConnell comes out and says, well, yeah, we should look at the Electoral Count Act, that's to try and head off changing the filibuster to do the other things, not to get serious change there. If we don't get these bills done, I honestly believe that we are hanging in our fundamental principles of voting in elections by a very, very shredded thread.
All right, it is now time for our sidebar feature where we explain an important concept in the news. I'm going to commandeer this one as a lifetime fan of the black and gold and its great teams of yore. Because the Pittsburgh Steelers, with a thrilling overtime victory at Baltimore and the help of the 2-14 Jacksonville Jaguars, have completed today an improbable procession into the NFL playoffs. But back to the greater days of yore. None was greater than the 70s teams that won four Super Bowls, and one of its greatest stars was Rocky Blyer, a much-beloved Pittsburgh legend and a running back for over a decade after being picked in the 16th round from Notre Dame. Rocky's professional football career was interrupted for a year when he was drafted in 1969 and went overseas to Vietnam where he was wounded in combat. Returning home, he was awarded the Bronze Star and a Purple Heart for his service before returning to gridiron greatness. Rocky is going to explain to us the very topical issue of when a former president can invoke executive privilege. Can former presidents assert executive privilege? Former President Donald Trump has resisted a subpoena for documents relevant to the January 6th Select Committee investigation of the insurrection and his possible role in it. Trump has filed a suit in federal court seeking to squash the subpoena on grounds of executive privilege. Both the district court and the court of appeals has ruled against him and just before Christmas, Trump appealed to the Supreme Court. President Biden, meanwhile, has determined not to assert executive privilege over the Trump-related documents that the committee is seeking. Does Trump have a valid legal claim? It doesn't look like it. The lower court and court of appeals were both emphatic in rejecting his claim. The court held that We only have one president at a time, i.e., once Biden has definitively decided not to assert the privilege, that settles the matters. At this point, Trump is a constitutional outsider with no special status over other citizens, rejecting another chief contention of the former president. The courts also noted that the Congress has a legitimate purpose in investigating the circumstances of the insurrection and potentially legislating in response. The case now moves to the Supreme Court, and Trump will have something to work with there. In a 1977 case called Nixon versus GSA, the Supreme Court ruled that former President Nixon could assert executive privilege objections to stop the General Services Administration from taking custody of his papers and tapes. However, Having recognized Nixon's right to raise the objection, the court then held that the release of the papers and tapes would not violate executive privilege. Thus, Nixon versus GSA stands for the proposition that a former president is entitled to press a claim of executive privilege. But the contours of that authority are unclear. More importantly, in Trump's case, whatever interest he may have are defeated by President Biden's express decision not to assert the privilege. That makes sense. 
Only the current president is constitutionally authorized to take care to enforce the law and to weigh the policy considerations on either side. That should include the policy considerations in favor of protecting the privilege for former presidents in order to protect confidential communications going forward. If the Supreme Court either denies review or accepts review and affirms the appeals court, we will have a definitive answer to Trump's claim that when a current and former president reach different conclusions on whether to assert executive privilege, the decision of the current president controls. So Trump would have no executive privilege claim to advance, nor would his associates who have raised executive privilege to avoid providing testimony to the January 6th select committee. However, if the Supreme Court takes a long time to consider the case, the January 6th committee would lose the benefit of the ruling because it is planning to complete its work well in advance of the midterm elections. We're talking feds. I'm Rocky Blyer. Thank you very much to the great Rocky Blyer. Rocky is the holder of four Super Bowl rings, and in 2018, he was inducted into the Steelers Hall of Fame. Man, I wish we could spend more on this, but fortunately, Juliet has set the table very much already. The numbers are dizzying and unfathomable. One million, one million new cases in the U.S. on one day this week and a daily average of over 600,000, which could, by the way, by many estimations, be a massive undercount. Are we getting to the point where we just have to think of the virus as this ongoing feature of American life? And does the administration's communication strategy now have to adapt to that viewpoint? As teacher, I call on someone other than the best student at the front of the class, Juliet. <laughs> I have to say, I was pointing to David. So... <laughs> <laughs> so- I'm not sure I'm in a position to tell Biden what to do, but I do feel like we sure are in a you place. You're on the New York Times, the gray lady. You tell all the time. <laughs> but I do feel like we are at a place where this is becoming endemic. This is some, one of the more hopeful times that I've been, again, as no expert, just reading about this, that I think we're close to a time where like everybody and their mother is going to get it in the next month and then we'll be through it or we'll be in a place where it's like the common cold or the flu. This, in some ways, was the best possible way you could get out of it. If it becomes something that's very mild for the vaccinated, you get it once. Many people that I've talked to have a couple of days of symptoms or no symptoms, and then you're through it. No one would want everyone in America to get a cold at the same time, but that seems like where we're headed. And I'm hopeful that on the other side, the world looks more like it did before the pandemic, or we at least understand how to live with it. But we're now in this place where we have all the mechanisms of testing and quarantining designed to stop this transmission and that seems like it's wreaking having with schools and employers and airlines. I don't know how much longer that could really go on. We don't do that for the common cold. And if that's where this is heading, if you're vaccinated, maybe that's the wrong thing. I'd like to follow up in particular on schools, which seems to be its own kind of divisive fault line. There was a good piece, I think, just today in The Atlantic by a lifelong self-identified liberal Democrat who is gone. I've had enough. She's getting shouted down basically for questioning the wisdom of school closures. 
if we're on this, okay, here's the new future, welcome to it. It's one thing to get used to a lot of contingencies, but school seem A, really challenging and B, really politically fraught. What's the new world order where COVID is just a built-in feature look like if you have primary school students? So it should look like it would look if there was a flu outbreak in a particular school. Perpetual flu outbreak. Right. Here's where we are. There's names for this stuff. Let's make it familiar. So it's called adaptive recovery. That means there's going to be no national standards because every community is going to be different. So the idea that the entire School District of Chicago shuts down because the teachers are worried about transmission, which they were put at the front of the line in terms of vaccination just for this reason, is ridiculous. The way it's going to work is everyone's making a risk calculation based on do you have an immunocompromised kid or is your kid two years old or you're living with your parents? And the government's responsibility is to drive the resources, which they have failed at, at least on testing, to minimize the impact of the threat that's going to exist for a while. So I get it. Unlike other crises, a hurricane, a tornado, a terrorist attack even, we're going to learn to get through recovery with the threat still there. But that's not the 2020 threat. This is why you don't want me as your doctor, but you'd want me on the Titanic. Because here's the deal. The burden now has to fall on the unvaccinated. We're done with them. In other words, enough with emotions. We do mandates, if appropriate, in the legal fights. But the idea that we're going to set our standard of living for the irresponsible, although many of them are not, I get it, under five, whatever, but for the vast majority of Americans who are the ones who are dying is a very bad public health, moral in my mind, and political move because it's not like the vaccine came out yesterday. I was not like this in January of 2020, but by the time we start to hit a wall and we cannot get rid of our supply of vaccines, all of a sudden it is, well, we just got to shift the burden. So that's where I am. And I think the Biden administration should be somewhat unapologetic about it. We're moving forward. This is the smart public health move. This is not just politics. A couple of points, Harry. One, I think that COVID has actually been the single most significant part of our political dynamic over the last two years. I think COVID had more to do with Glenn Youngkin winning in Virginia, that the real school issue was the closings. And this sense that Democrats, especially school boards and others, were completely insensitive to what it was going to do to families, to parents who were stuck at home 24-7 in a two-bedroom apartment with four kids for two years, with people who couldn't go to work because they had no place for their kids to go. And instead of showing empathy and trying to work it through, it was public health got to shut things down. And that's been bad. And the people went through two years of this and then it was finally we're coming out of it. And then Delta comes along and then Omicron comes along. And we have to change the way we look at things. If there's a huge mistake along the way, it is the failure of Operation Warp Speed to do masks as much as they did vaccines, excuse me, tests. If we'd had rapid tests, we could have kept schools open, we could have kept restaurants open, test them before they go in. And it wouldn't have been perfect, but it would have at least brought back a semblance of normal life. If there's one thing I'd like to see them do now, at least as a start, it is you can't get on an airplane unless you can show proof of vaccination, period. Start to jawbone to bring this about. We're done with your emotions. Just make it emotionless. There's rules yeah. and I don't need to understand 
why you're doing this. Although this is a whole nother topic. I listened to the Supreme Court this morning and Alito and the conservatives, they were worried about the emotions of the unvaccinated. It was really interesting. Yeah. It does sound like, am I right, David, that all three of you think we've moved to a new stage where it's with us now. It's no longer straight science and Fauci. It's politics, political choices. You know, if people don't like them, vote out of the ballot box. But it's time for politicians to be using the bully pulpit and the like. And that's the sort of new stage we're at in COVID management. Are all three of you agreeing with that position? Yes. All right. Well, there's an end, (laughs) which is good because we only have a couple minutes left for our Talking Five feature where somebody writes in a question and we all have to answer it in five words or fewer. The question today comes from Andrash Benda. Omicron is the 15th of 24 letters in the Greek alphabet. Where should we go for a naming source if we run out? Emojis. <laughs> Start with the smiley face and just work your way through. We'll get to Dancing Lady eventually. It, that does to see, seem to be an infinite sequence. I've never gotten to the end of it anyway. And people are like, what do you have? Oh, I got the crying face one. Oh, no. I got the poop one. <laughs> right. Can I take his? Because not only is it brilliant, I actually think we should do it. I think we should do that one. I like I like that one. Okay. Mine is four-letter words. Nice. <laughs> yeah. The shit variant has just come up. <laughs> it's hit the fan. <laughs> All right. I hope the Twitterverse will forgive me for staying pointy ahead. This is more for my son, but I'm going to go with, we can all look it up, Fibonacci numbers. What? All right. We are out of time. Thank you very much to David, Norm, and Juliet. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't just outtakes or ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions with Bobby Allen on the Theranos trial, Matt Miller on the Merrick Garland speech addressing the January 6th insurrection, and Melissa Murray on the Supreme Court arguments of the Biden vaccine mandates. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you'd like to subscribe. And we are also just now introducing a new tier to our Patreon to offer more exclusive benefits to subscribers, including participation in live Q&A events with me, fly-on-the-wall attendance at two episode tapings, and short legal explainers from me in our Talking in Class series, not to mention Talking Feds swag. To learn more, head to our Patreon at patreon.com. Slash Talking Feds. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the 
Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Assistant producer, Matt McArdle. Sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ray Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to the great Rocky Blyer, football star and military hero, for explaining when and whether former presidents can assert executive privilege. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.